0: In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Amy Tector about the Honeybee Emeralds. Amy has spent more than 20 years plumbing the secrets squirreled away in archives. Whether it's uncovering a whale's ear true story in a box of old photographs, or working in The Hague for the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for War Crimes in the former Yugoslavia, she has been privy to hidden records and extraordinary secrets. She now works at Canada's National Archives, Library and Archives Canada, and is an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa and a sessional instructor at Carleton University. Amy lives in Ottawa, Canada with a daughter named Violet, a husband named Andrew, and a dog named Daffodil. She is an enthusiastic but incompetent cross-country skier. I just recently released my summer reading list, which includes all sorts of great recommendations for summer reading. Amy's book is on the list, and you can find the link to the entire guide in this episode's show notes. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily... I'm great, Cindy. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm so glad you're here. I loved your book, The Honeybee Emeralds, and I can't wait to talk about it. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> well, what I usually do is ask the author to give me a quick synopsis of the book for those that won't have read it yet. So, can you do that for The Honeybee Emeralds? Yes, of
1: course. The Honeybee Emeralds is a lighthearted mystery. It's set in Paris amongst the expatriate community there, and it follows the adventures of four point of view characters who discover a beautiful, mysterious diamond and emerald necklace with a big honeybee pendant at its center. And the women take this discovery and um, use it as a chance to explore the history of the necklace. So rather than turn it into the police, they decide to kind of figure out where the necklace came from, who its owners were, and kind of what its story is. And so they start to investigate. They go to archives. They have to go to the Loire Valley at one point. They have to go to, um, very exclusive jewelers in Paris, the Richelieu Library, doing all kinds of research to sort of track the provenance and the story of the necklace. And while they're doing that, they uncover the story, which follows the sort of the ownership story of the necklace involves three very powerful, interesting, significant real life historical figures. So. My fictional necklace was owned by the real life Napoleon, mistress of Napoleon III, Marguerite Belanger, um, who then passed it along to Mata Hari, who's the famous World War I spy. And then lastly to Josephine Baker, who is the renowned American jazz age singer who moved to um, to Paris and became the toast of France for decades. She's not as well known in North America but she has this just incredible story. And so my novel tells the contemporary story of the four women as they sort of try to untangle this the mystery of the necklace while resolving their own issues with relationships and friendships and motherhood and career. And at the same time, tells a bit of the story and the history of the background of those three women who all have these like amazing arcs of being born into a lot of poverty and, and enduring a lot of challenges in order to sort of triumph on their own merits essentially. So the the contemporary women sort of learn from and feed off of the stories of these women in the past to inform their their present life.
0: I really liked the format, most of the story being written in present day, but also then flashing back to these women in the past and their stories. I thought you did that very well.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was it was fun and challenging. <laughs>
0: I bet it was to figure out exactly how much to include and how to connect everything up, and just all of it.
1: Yeah, you always hear. I think when uh, authors talk about historical research, the challenge is t- is taking out. Right? There's so much good stuff that you want to put in, and then you have to you have to not info dump all of your all of your research. So that was definitely a challenge for me because these women had such fascinating lives. I was like, oh, I want to tell everybody <laughs> all these cool things I learned, but I restrained myself. <laughs>
0: your book would be 800 pages and they'd be like, wow, she really went off on a tangent here. <laughs> That's so funny because that has been a conversation topic. I would say in the last month or two in several interviews about how hard it is to narrow down and how frustrating it is when you are reading a book and all of a sudden there is an info dump and you're like, wait a minute, it kind of pulls you out of the story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 I experience, as a reader, I've experienced the frustration of getting that info dump. And as a writer, I've experienced the frustration of trying to avoid giving that info dump because you put so much work into it. And really, you do discover such cool things. And then you, you want to work it all in. But uh, you've got to be true to the story
0: rather than showing off your own research, I guess. Exactly. But you did that very well. And there was no info dump at all. Yay. <laughs> <Good>. Thanks. <laughs> well, where did the idea come from for the story? And I guess there's several ideas, the expat community, setting it in Paris, the necklace. Did you come up with the design of the fictional necklace yourself?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I did. It's based, that necklace is based on lots of of beautiful jewelry that was designed at the sort of end of the 19th century, especially in Paris. There was a real sort of not quite yet art nouveau, but the intricate, beautiful objects that were designed. So there's, you know, tiaras and, 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 uh, you know, brooches and all sorts of cool jewelry that was designed that would be sort of figurative. So that the honeybee idea came from there. But the design of it uh, is my own imagination based on similar jewelry from the era. And um, the idea for the expat community was um, I, I have lived in Europe for a number of years for different jobs, both for myself and for my husband. And it was it's such a unique and interesting thing to go overseas, know that that's not where you belong. So you're not immigrating to a new country. And yet you're living, you're living there for a period of time. And so you, you're maintaining your connections with home. You're not fully embracing this sort of foreign life, but at the same time, you, you want to explore and live, uh, you know, like a local as much as possible. It's a funny little, it's kind of a funny place to, to be emotionally. Uh, and so I tried to capture a little bit of that in, in this book that you're, you're not quite settled into your, into your adoptive country because you know that you're not staying there forever.
0: But you want to take advantage of as much as you can while you're there.
1: You want to take advantages of, of as much as you can. But there's a real uh, sort of dichotomy that I observed when I was an expat: of you also get really homesick, and you and you you want to sort of plug you want to plug into those communities of, of other people who are living who who like you are living in this in this new country, experiencing the intricacies of the bureaucracy of how difficult it is to get a driver's license or a parking permit and you know or whatever the sort of mundane thing is. You want to plug back into your home country community almost to sort of vent about these difficulties while at the same time you want to immerse yourself and become like a local. So there's a real you're sort of tugged in two directions. And it's a really kind of funny, interesting space to to live in. And you don't quite belong in the country that you're in. But you're quite foreign and different when you go back home, too. So I was trying to capture a little bit of that.
0: I thought you did a great job. So my dad worked for Exxon his entire career. And so we lived in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, for three years when I was young. And then they lived in Australia, and I visited them a fair amount once I was out of college. And so I know what that's like to be an expat and, as you said, try to kind of blend into your new community, but you're also really missing home. And some things are so different, especially when we lived in Brazil.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I bet. And I was, I was startled. Uh, we moved to, we lived in Belgium for three years because my husband's job. And I thought, oh, this will, you know, this will be a cinch. Be- Belgium's a liberal Western democracy. There won't be, you know, there won't be any kind of jarring uh, sense of displacement. I, I even speak French and um, <laughs> there was like, <laughs> I spent a lot of time a little bit bewildered by the Belgian approach to things. So I, I can't imagine moving to moving to somewhere that is so so much more culturally different than, than even, you know, Belgium versus Canada, where I'm from.
0: Well, and I was going to say that the weird thing about Brussels, because I lived there one summer when I was in law school, I took classes at the Free University through my law school and the time, you know, but maybe in Canada, that's not as different for you. Like for us, you know, the sun sets at what, 8.30 and then rises at whatever time in the morning. But like in the summer in Brussels, I mean, the sun didn't set till after 11 and or at least 10.30, it was late. And then, you know, it was coming up quickly. And then they talked about the winter, how it doesn't get light until 9.15 or something. So the days were so short.
1: Yeah, no, and I actually even talk about that a little bit in Honeybee. There's just a one character remarks on that, that Paris is actually the same latitude. It's far, Paris is far more northerly than any Canadian city, even. It's just the way the climate works. It's, it's Europe is much warmer. And so it does that, that daylight thing is a real thing when you're living in Northern Europe where <laughs> it's grim and, and Belgium is, is kind of brutal because it rains all the time. So it's just overhead clouds where you go to work in the dark, you come home in the dark throughout that sort of whole winter and it's 330, the sun is setting kind of thing. Yeah, that's a, that, uh, that's a tough one. <laughs>
0: Yes. And I was there for summer, so it wasn't quite so bad. It was just funny to have the sun setting so late, but I just remember people talking about what the winter was like. Yeah. Well, tell me all about your research.
1: Well, I'm an archivist by training, so I do not shy away from uh, historical research. And so as I was um, coming up with this idea for for this book that I knew, like I said, I wanted to set in the expat community and Paris is such an amazing city that I chose that over Brussels just because I was quite familiar with it. But I thought readers might be a little more interested in, in a Parisian story than a, than a Belgian story. And once I had figured out that I wanted to kind of shine the spotlight on these three different eras around these three different historical women, the research was a blast. It was mostly books and internet research and lots and lots of reading and uh, you know, interlibrary loans from my library and that sort of thing. To, to learn about these women and their lives. But then what I wanted to capture in the story itself was the excitement of doing archival research, uh, which I've spent the past 20 years or so <laughs> working on and working in in that field. And so I have my characters go to these different archives and libraries and sort of have that thrill of opening up a box of material and pulling out primary documents, documents that the, the subjects of the research would have touched and, and felt and written and, and to see the penmanship and uh, feel the paper beneath their fingers. I tried to capture some of that, that tangible excitement uh, that exists when you go and do research in an archives and you're working with those primary documents.
0: I really enjoyed that because I love research myself and I just love history and learning different things. And so it was really fun to hear about the Richelieu Library, which I wasn't familiar with, and then also just the research they were doing.
1: Yeah, good, good. That's I was I was hoping I'm such an archives nerd. (laughs) I'm a nerd myself. So I
0: was like, Oh, this is great. I love all
1: of this. (laughs) I I mean, there's a scene where they're in the microfilm reading room. And I'm like, Oh, boy, this is (laughs) it is what it is. But you know, microfilm is very still very important when you're doing archival research. So I, I had to include some microfilm in my book. Absolutely. Well, what was the hardest part
0: about writing the book?
1: This is my debut novel, but it's not my the first novel I've written. But I will say that it was the easiest book to write because the subject matter was so much fun, uh, and I could really let my imagination roam. I wrote it f- mostly from here in Ottawa, so I, it was it allowed me to take many trips down memory lane of thinking about Paris and the places that I loved and how I could highlight those, and you know. How good a Parisian croissant tastes, and how delicious, uh, you know, a nice glass of wine sitting on a on the sidewalk in a Parisian cafe. How how much better that glass of wine tastes. So I had a lot of fun writing it all, and then the most difficult part of it all, I'd say, was the editing, where I had to then go back and and kind of uh, sift through <laughs> my excitement and my joy in writing it and structure it a little more because I tend. Uh, my writing process, I don't do a lot of outlining. I don't really do much. I don't do any outlining, really. I just sort of write. And so that can be quite joyful for me. But then the real pleasure and the, and the challenge then becomes the editing when I go back and try to impose order into my chaos. So that's always fun for me, but also it's always it always takes longer and is always more difficult.
0: So in addition to the two timeframes, the story of the necklace and then the contemporary story... You also include other types of formats like you have some texting you have some letters that are written was that the way it was done from the beginning or did you do that as you went along in your editing or how did all of that come about Most of that
1: was from the beginning definitely the letters from the sort of which give you a sense of the past I always thought that that's what I, that's how I would do it because I love books like that you know like uh, Kate Morton does does some wonderful books stories where you go back and you discover the secret letters and then you learn these, you know, you learn more and it gives you insight into the mystery, but also your current problems. I really like that. I like that narrative. So I knew that I wanted to have some historical letters. And then as I was writing and the story was evolving and the relationships between the contemporary characters were changing, I also realized that it would be fun to include some text messages and those kinds of exchanges. And then I was really delighted that my publisher kind of took that and, and made some decisions on how to kind of format the book so that it was really clear and distinct, the different formats and made, and I think made them quite pretty. Like there's, there's various, like you said, different ways that the story is told and they're all differentiated and highlighted on the pages of the book itself, which I thought was really neat and certainly wasn't something I had thought about or considered. That was really the publisher that, that took that initiative and made it look wonderful, I think.
0: I was curious about that because, yes, I loved it. It did look wonderful, and it was so easy to understand then who was talking and what you were reading in terms of if it was a text or if it was a letter or if it was the standard part of the story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They, and, they, you know, they did a great job. I know, Cindy, you love the covers.
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to get to that because that's the whole reason I said yes in the beginning was because of your cover and the setting of Paris. But yes, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I, I was just going to say that, um, that that cover has, you know, I, I'm so delighted with it. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful cover that uh, Key Light Publishing came up with and has really, I think, does a great service to the story. And they they did it all like <laughs> they showed me some sort of final, um, final possibilities. I got to choose the sort of very the very final look. But by the time they showed me their designs, they were all sort of of the same ilk. They just had different kind of font colors and things like that. But that that sort of beautiful kind of almost wallpapery look with the Eiffel Pat Tower coming up. That was that was all the brilliance of my publishing
0: house that I'm I'm so happy with. It's just stunning. It will be one of my favorite covers of the year. I just love it.
1: Yay, that's great. I'm going to make a poster. That's a, that's my treat for
0: myself. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get this in poster form. I think you should. It's just beautiful. And it really does evoke the story. So, you know, I loved it from the beginning, but then once I read your book, I really loved it.
1: Oh, good, good. Uh, th- well, that's the thing. I think that... <laughs> The the story now has to live up to this cover because I've gotten I've you know received such great feedback on that cover I'm like oh no like <laughs> you can't judge a book by a cover I hope I hope the story lives up to it
0: <laughs> oh absolutely though I do judge books by the cover but yours lives up to it so it's all good <laughs>
1: okay that's a relief
0: well what about your favorite character to write and your least favorite character to write
1: oh yeah interesting I think my favorite character to write. Is Elise Boucher, who is this very grumpy French woman, who is sort of tangential to the story uh, for most of the book, and she's she's living uh, she's the office manager at the magazine. I should have said that they discover this necklace, and part of the reason why they decide to track down its history is in an effort to save Bonjour Paris, which is the which is the expat magazine that the women work for. Uh, which is floundering, as many <laughs> magazines are these days. And so they're hoping that a sort of blockbuster cover story about this cool necklace will uh, revive the magazine's fortunes and allow the magazine to continue. So that's the, that's the sort of impetus for the, for all of their research. And Elise Boucher is the office manager for the magazine, and she's not actually involved in, in the research around discovering the necklace. She's just li- living quite a <laughs> grumpy French-Parisian life being annoyed by all the expats around her and, um, you know, irritated by her husband and thinking her own thoughts and worried about her ne'er-to-well sons and that sort of thing. And I I enjoyed it because I enjoyed writing her because it was, you, you know, I was able to give vent to all my, <laughs> my own grumpiness and really immerse myself in a sort of crabby lady who's kind of fed up. And, and I felt like it was a nice counterpoint to the sort of excitement and, and thrill that the other characters are feeling around the necklace. She's sort of cynical and and um, a, a bit annoyed with everything, but of course she herself has some hidden depths and some some other things going on in her life that that make her story, I think, ultimately poignant and 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 worthwhile. So that was a lot of fun. I really liked uh, writing her. Probably my the character that I least enjoyed is um, the character of Lily, who's the sort of who started out when I first conceived of the novel. She's the she's the magazine editor. So she's sort of the boss of the, of the research and of the kind of the impetus of the story. And when I first conceived of the novel, she was my protagonist. I didn't have the other point of view characters. It was all from her point of view. And she's great. She's fun. She's, you know, she's got her own problems and she's worried about her career and she's feeling creatively unfulfilled. And maybe she has a you know, an unrequited crush on an old friend. And she's, you know, she's dealing with her problems. But I think, I think I wanted more from her and I couldn't get it. So in the process of writing, that's why these other point of view characters came in, because I wanted different perspectives and maybe some, some um, edgier perspectives. And so Lily became maybe the a little less interesting for me to write still lots of fun and i think she's still an interesting character but she she might have been the more difficult one for
0: me to to get super excited about i can see that i think alice was my favorite character which i think is probably what many readers say but i just loved her
1: yeah i think my favorite character is daphne because she's such a like an unpleasant person in so many ways and she she's self-aware enough to know that she's Kind of selfish and self-involved and a little bit terrible, and so writing her, I found that a lot of fun, just because I could, I could give into my evil, um, my evil thoughts. She's my evil alter ego.
0: <laughs> I liked Daphne, though. I mean, she was hard early on because you're kind of cringing sometimes. You're like, Daphne, come on! But she comes around. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So let's talk a little bit more about both your title and your cover. We've talked a little bit about your cover and how beautiful it is. And so if you have any more to talk about that, that would be great. And then just how you decided to name it The Honeybee Emeralds.
1: Yeah, well, the cover, like I said, it really was the publisher's design that I fully supported and as a debut author, I sort of didn't know what to expect and I'm I'm part of this wonderful very supportive debut author group and so was able to see other other debuts um would contribute to the book and be like oh no I hate my cover or, it's not what I expected or it's you know it's giving a false impression to the reader and so I was braced to maybe have some battles with the publisher but they they presented me something so beautiful that I uh, and and like you said that held up uh, what the the sort of the story so so well that I had no arguments about the cover. So that that worked out really well. The title is interesting too. Originally, and for a long time, in all my drafting, I actually the title, the working title, was uh, Bonjour Paris, which is the name of of the magazine that they that they, these women work for. And I thought it was serviceable, but
0: in fact, it's terrible. It's a terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it's terrible but I don't love it so I understand
1: <laughs> it's not great and um and thank goodness I had in my in my querying process I had an agent give me this feedback who ultimately didn't um didn't accept the manuscript but I was lucky enough to get some uh, feedback from them and they said well, you know you've got to do something about that title so that really kind of I had thought oh well title doesn't matter the publishers will change it anyway if it gets picked up but um that snapped snapped me to attention i think and and then coming up with the honeybee emeralds seemed like a no-brainer and i was annoyed with myself that i hadn't thought of it from the get-go because uh i think it is i think it is interesting i think honeybee i think we all love honeybees <laughs> and you know we're worried about them too because they're um you know they're they're in danger uh and then emeralds are my favorite gemstone uh, i'm a redhead so i i love that uh, i love that deep green i think it's really beautiful and you know, pairs nicely with my hair. Uh, not that I have any emeralds, unfortunately. Um, but so Honey Bee Emeralds became, uh, it was very, it became an obvious title as soon as I got out of my head that uh, Bonjour
0: Paris uh, wasn't really uh, going to do it. Well, I think the problem with Bonjour Paris is you're going to pull up all sorts of things when people try to Google your book. But if you do the Honey Bee Emeralds, the second somebody puts it in, it's going to pop up your book.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I hadn't even thought, you know, I I am a I am a naive new person to this whole publishing world, so um and I hadn't even thought about sort of findability, discoverability when thinking about a title, but uh, that's a good point.
0: Well, there's so much that goes into it all. There's no way you can think about it all up front, but it's one of those things as you go, you learn and then by the time you're to your next book and the next book, you know, you kind of pick up different nuggets each time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you'd like to share with me?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm, I'm staying in archives. I, I can't quit <laughs> my love of uh, archives and writing about them. I just think they're such a rich source for stories and secrets and mysteries. So uh, I'm working on a three, a three book kind of loose series that's going to be called um, the Dominion uh, Archives Mysteries. And um, they're all centered around in the National Archives in Canada. Um, and the first one will be coming out actually this fall. It's called The Foulest Things and it's about a young junior archivist struggling with her career who, um, quite early on in the book. So it's not a spoiler finds a dead body squished in the archival stacks <laughs> and then has to solve that mystery. And, and there are some mysterious letters that she, uh, that she finds in the archives that contribute to untangling the mystery. So I, I've still got my, My sort of two formats and my little hint from the history and from the past coming in to inform the contemporary mystery.
0: Oh, good. Because I really did love that format. It was one of the things that I think stuck out to me about the book was that I really enjoyed the going back and forth and not having it be so evenly divided, where sometimes one timeline, you're like, oh, I really like this timeline. And then you have to spend all this other time in the other timeline and you're like, move along. So I really liked the kind of, you know, the, the contemporary was the main timeline, but there was the flashing back. I really liked that.
1: Oh, I'm glad I do. I do find it a little tricky because I'm like, I don't think it's history. It's not historical fiction and it's not even like as, as much, there's not even as much history as say um, a a Kate Morton book where, where, where it does, I think go pretty much always back and forth, back and forth. But it does, it doesn't not have historical fiction elements, (laughs) that's for sure. And it's the same with this, with this more um, obvious murder mystery that I'm writing also definitely has, has that historical element. Okay, good. Yeah. And I think partly it's just that it's, it's reality, even though we're so, you know, we're so modern and we're so contemporary and we're so plugged into our computers and the internet and like new pop culture and things coming up uh, on the daily What we don't realize or we don't stop and think about very often is how deeply the past is informing everything that's happening and how important it is to understand history in order to understand ourselves. And I think a lot of these books that have these dual back and forth timelines, it's kind of making explicit this this reality that we don't often think about, which is that everything that's going on in the world today there are deep and complex roots for that 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 are worth exploring and
0: understanding a little bit more. Absolutely. And obviously, this is not at all any kind of political talk. But I think if you watch what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, and, you know, understanding that Ukraine looked back at what happened in World War II and thought we've got to respond differently. I do think, you know, you you have to look back and learn from what's happened in the past.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even though this novel is Someone called it joyful, which was delightful to me, but it's light and it's, and it's, it's not silly, but it's light and it's, and it's, um, it's not, not, not very heavy, let's say. I still think that that, that, that truth of, of people connecting with the past and realizing how it still impacts on them, how the stories from the past inform their lives. It's, it's meaningful and it's, it's important and, uh, it's worth, it's worth talking about. And I think that's partly why we get drawn
0: to historical fiction the way that we do. I agree completely. Well, what have you read lately that you really liked?
1: Oh, this is my favorite part <laughs> your podcast. I sit there with a pen and jot down the, the recommendations.
0: It's a, one of my favorite parts, too, because I learn about so many books that I never knew about.
1: Well, that's ex- exactly like you've got such a broad range of guests. Anyway. Um, so I had a little think about this, and I I've been, as I said, I'm part of this debut authors group, and so what that has made me do is read many of the group my group members' books as they come out, which has been fantastic because in the past I haven't actually sought out debut authors particularly, but this year I have. So I'm going to recommend Liv Stratman's Cheat Day. Uh, she uh, has written this wonderful set in New York. Really hilarious, acerbic uh, take on relationships and also on disordered eating. So it's uh, wry and biting, and it has an un, an un not an unfriendly and unlikable protagonist, which is you know not to everyone's taste, but it, is a it's a it's a great it's a great book, really funny and smart. And then another group member is uh, Karthana Ramasetti, who wrote Dava Shastri's Last Day. Which is also got a great premise. That one is this uh, incredibly wealthy, influential media mogul woman who is dying and knows she's dying and fakes her death a little early so that she can read the obituaries and see what the world thinks of her. And then it's the repercussions <laughs> because she's not remembered in the way that she thought she would be. Uh, so that one also interesting and, and, um, really insightful on, current pop culture and 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 you know how how we're viewing the world and how we want to be remembered and life and death and family all those beautiful things um and then the third one i'm not sure if i can if swearing is loud
0: totally fine
1: <laughs> all right great so uh shit cassandra saw which is this fantastic
0: book of short
1: stories a collection of short stories that are angry <laughs> and funny and uh, unusual and fantastic and really and really worth a read. So th- those are some of the books that uh, that I've loved, and all of them are by debut writers, which I which I'm really enjoying uh, discovering and then
0: spreading the word about. I love discovering debut authors also because then you're just in on the ground floor, is how I look at it. So then, as they keep putting new books out, you've been following them since the beginning, and I think that's so much fun.
1: Yeah, you, you get the bragging rights, you know, you've got the cred. So um, that's, pre- that's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, it's fun.
0: Well, Amy, thank you so much. I'm so glad you joined me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Cindy. I really enjoyed it. Hi there. I'm Heather
0: Drago. And I'm
1: Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard
0: no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at thoughtsfromapage Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.